and Bill has been here uh, quite a bit over the years. We've ministered in Romania uh, together. I didn't even know he was there, and I ran into him in Bucharest, Romania. Uh, Bill, I mean, this guy needs to write a book about his life. I don't want to take his thunder away, but uh, from uh, he was a gun runner in the Caribbean, uh, uh, smuggler. His wife was in a California crazy cult, and God got a hold of both of their hearts. And uh, missionaries around the world, Cambodia almost killed them. I mean, they put it on the line in Cambodia and ministered there in the killing fields, and, and then Romania, and, and now directing ministries to children and those caught up in human trafficking, sex slavery, I mean, the whole ball away. I don't want to take any thunder away, but you're going to be blessed this morning. Bill, hear me in this. Take your liberty. These people love good preaching. Give them a good hand this morning. Bill Prevent. It's, it's always fun to come back to a place that you know people. Amen. I've been around the world. I think I've been in like 70, 80 countries. And uh, yeah, Phil, we met, and it was just something we shared together. You know, our backgrounds aren't similar, because he comes from a, he's a fairly stable sort of guy, <laughs> and I come from the wildest background, and I'm, this is, I'm taking this home with me. This is the very first time I've ever seen a bulletin with it printed in print that I went from the Caribbean gun running to international missionary for human trafficking. So I'm going to take this home and show it to, uh, in a minute I'm going to tell you about what I do now. And uh, I work in Oxford, England. We talk about a sense of humor. Now, now I'm based in Oxford with some of the brightest people on the planet. And uh, I never thought I'd end up, you know, ever in missions. I mean, that's just the last thing on earth I was going to do. I'm supposed to stand up here? Is that the deal? Anyone? Anyway, I'll move around some. I, uh, I always tell people, I've been here three or four times, but I always tell people just a little bit, maybe five minutes of my background, so you kind of can relate to who I am, because I think all of us have stories, right? All of us have backgrounds. We all come from some kind of story before God gets a hold of us and starts turning our lives around. Now, you you may have been a cradle Pentecostal, you know, raised in the church, but you still have a story. And your story is important because you matter to God. And your life is a gift. And God has given you a life for a purpose. And that's what we're going to talk about. Mission is the purposes of God expressed to all people, but it's through our lives. So I was born in Pontiac, Michigan. This is why it's so odd for me to come back here every time. Dad was a surgeon over here at Pontiac General. But he died when I was about a year old, and my mom had put him through medical school. She had no money. Um, she was, had two young boys, and she didn't know what to do. So she's from North Carolina. She takes her boys back home to where she's from, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, how many of you have ever had or known kids that were in trouble a lot, or a troubled teenager? Maybe you know some kids like that. I was, Mom says I was in trouble from the time I was four years old. Uh, throwing the, the neighbor's prize tomatoes against the wall. I was doing all kinds of things wrong. And Mom was at her wit's end about what to do with her boys. She didn't have any money, really. And there was a children's home in Winston-Salem, an orphanage. And it took in broken kids and broken, family, you know, broken families there. A lot of kids didn't have parents, so the parents were in prison. And that's where I grew up. I grew up in a children's home. So what that means, friends, is I was exposed to a lot of violence. I was in fistfights every day of my life. There was a lot of violence between the house parents, the people who managed the children's home. If you're trying to manage 20 unruly kids and you don't know what you're doing, you can resort sometimes to anger. 
So I grew up with a lot of anger and a lot of violence and a lot of just crazy stuff. And I also grew up in the South, in the United States, of course, but I have to say this in England, but you remember the civil rights era. You remember the divisions in our country back in the 60s. And so I grew up through all of that. And our home was segregated. There were no black kids there. It was just white kids. And the house parents were frankly bigoted. They were very bigoted about color. And they, men that I knew growing up would use the N-word all the time in referring to people of color. And even as a child, I thought, there's something wrong with that. But I got in trouble so much that I had a teacher, thank God for teachers, thank God for people who invest in children. Because a teacher took me aside on the fourth grade and said, Billy, that's what they called me back then, you can learn to read, and she got me reading books. And I loved to read, and I read everything I'd get my hands on. And I remember reading the book To Kill a Mockingbird. Do you know this book? It's the story of racial injustice in the South. And as a 12-year-old kid, I read that book, and it struck something in me. And a house parent that was quite a bully, he was a very angry man, had been a drill sergeant in the Army. He used to pound on the kids all the time. He always referred to black people as in. I won't say the word out loud. And I went to him and said, you can't talk like that. And he smashed me in the face and told me to shut up. He was a deacon in our church. You see, I was made to go to church every Sunday. I had church rammed down my throat. I had a lot of religion stuff down my throat, and I didn't want anything to do with it. So as a kid, 14, 15 years old, let me tell you something, kids are smart. They figure out what authentic things are. They figure out what's real. You do not have to convince kids you're playing games with them. And I was one of those kids, and when I got, off the I got away from the children's home, I went to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, to go to university when I was 17 years old, and I decided to study politics, so I majored in political science and chemistry. This is a bad combination if you're an anarchist. <laughs> I was an anarchist. I was involved with making bombs, making LSD. We were anti-war, anti-government, anti-everything. You know, I was part of that whole counterculture. Back then, Phil, I could grow hair. I had hair came out the top of my head, actually. And I was, you know, I was just a campus radical. And I went across the door of a church. I thought churches were just total waste of time, got totally involved with the counterculture movement, read Nietzsche, read Marx, read all the philosophies I could read. And, you know, I'm going through university, I'm getting more and more disillusioned, thinking, you know, this is not answering my questions. Where, there's got to be more to life than this. And then I said, well, I don't believe there's a God, but if there is a God, God seems to help those that help themselves to all they can get. That's right, sister, thanks. Because you live in a culture that's caught up in consumerism. Your culture is driven by commodification and consumerism. Because the boomers like us went out after the 60s and started Apple. And started Microsoft. And started a culture of raw consumerism where today you are defined not by who you are, but what you have. And those things do not make a human being a human being. What makes a human being is the dignity and glory of God that's in every human being. We do not teach this in our society. So therefore, I was caught up with anger, and that's how I ended up in the Caribbean. That's why I ended up chasing the dollars. Went to Alaska first, made a pile of money up there on the pipeline. Then I went down to the Caribbean. I got involved with drugs. Money laundering, racketeering, the whole schmear. I'm your typical Assemblies of God missionary, believe me. <laughs> I'm sure you got lots of us. 
No, I'm not like many guys. I grew up with a, such a, tra, a tra, broken past. As he said, Kai got frightened with the people. My wife and I lived in the West Indies. She left that. She came back to California. She'd never been to church in her life. Listen, friends, there's people outside these doors that know nothing about Jesus. They're biblically illiterate. They think we're in here doing stupid stuff. Hey, I'm here because the kingdom of God is here. I'm here because Jesus is alive. I'm here because this stuff works. It changes people. So Kai went back to California. She got around a bunch of Christians, and she started going to an Assembly of God church. She got saved. They, you know, Assembly of God people, Phil knows this whole background. They speak in strange language. Praise God, hallelujah, all that stuff. I thought she was in a cult called the Assemblies of God. So I left the Caribbean, went to California to rescue her out of a cult, and guess what happened to me? Now, I said this everywhere I've ever been, and I've preached in a lot of places. I didn't come into contact with a religion, your philosophy, or your ideas. I came into contact with Jesus Christ. My life got turned upside down. I walked into the glory of God. In 1982, I went and shook my fist in the face of God and said, you show me you're real, and I might believe some of this stuff, but I can't believe it unless I know it's real. Don't get upset with God. Because God will answer your prayers. And I got hit with a bolt of lightning, and I came to the Lord, and I was just filled with God. I had a six-hour episode on the carpet, just weeping my eyes out. And I was changed. The gospel changes people, friends. I'm evidence of it. And if you don't believe that, then I took off and got involved with missions. Heard about Mark Buntain working in India, a guy we, some of us in this room, know Mark Buntain. He's passed away. Mark was old school Pentecost. I mean, this stuff preaching for 20 minutes, Mark would preach for an hour, and he spit on everybody in the room. Mark was old school. Bless God! Hallelujah! And I mean, he started, and he didn't stop for an hour and a half, and you wouldn't move, because you were riveted with the stories this guy told about the power of Christ in Calcutta, how God had redeemed people, how God was working in poverty. I mean, you go to Calcutta, you see the five million people living on the streets of that city in busty slums. It'll do something to you. And I heard this man say these things, and I'd been a Christian three months. And I said, if God's really doing those sorts of things, I've got to see this firsthand. Because I was a skeptic. Even though I'd met the Lord, I was a skeptic when people talked to me. It's all right. I have a hermeneutic of suspicion. It's a gift from God. I've got to be convinced of things. And I went to India, and it changed my life. And as Phil said, we then became Assembly of God missionaries in 1985. We've been in Thailand for 10 years, or 8 years. Cambodia, followed in the aftermath of the Khmer Rouge. Killing fields, two million people out of eight million people killed there. We spent a number of years there. It did about kill me, but it taught me more about Jesus than anything I've ever done before in my life. It taught me about how God is close to the brokenhearted. He's close to the suffering. He inhabits the prayers of broken people. And Cambodia changed me forever. And then I came out of there and I went on to Romania and I worked in Eastern Europe in the aftermath of Nicolae Ceausescu who put 400,000 children in state-run institutions. Ladies, if you'd lived in that country, it was, state, it was a law of the state. Women had to have five kids each. Your uterus did not belong to you, it belonged to the state. So you had to have children. And if you couldn't take care of them, the state would take care of them. So they put them in institutions. So the news you saw in 1990, if you can remember those times, and all those kids that were in deplorable orphanages, 
That pulled me into Eastern Europe, and I got involved with Eastern Europe. And then some friends of mine who loved me like Phil loved me, and we were all kind of, there's, you know, we, we, we preachers kind of take care of each other. Some friends of mine said, Bill, you know, you've got a passion, and you've got a heart, and you've got a mind. You've got to use it. You should go to Oxford and get a PhD. I said, I'm not going to Oxford. I'm going to work amongst the broken. And my best friends leaned on me, and they said, go to Oxford, get this degree. And I, so I didn't move there. I just commuted there from Romania. I went for six weeks every year, and I earned a doctorate at Oxford University. Looking at the question of faith and the gospel and restoration for broken people. Friends, I can preach it, I can teach it, and I can lecture in it. God is alive. The evidence is substantial. There is no question that this man, Jesus, lived on earth, died, was crucified, and was raised from the dead. Take it or leave it, that happened. The evidence is incontroversial. You cannot debate it. They do, but it's, the evidence is there. The best scholars know this. It's belief. You can choose not to believe it. That's fine. But the fact is, he was risen from the dead, and I declare to you, he is Lord, and he is still alive today, and he's working in our world, and he's in this room with us. He's here by his spirit. Can you feel him? He's with us. And this was, you know, for me, going to Oxford was like, what in the world am I doing? I finished a degree there. I decided to go back. I did some time down in Lakeland, Florida. I taught for a year. I was praying, God, where do you want me to go next? And God called me back to Oxford, England. I said, I'm not going to live in Oxford, Lord. And he said, where can you have influence? Well, Oxford attracts the best and the brightest minds from all over the world, all over the world. And so they invited me to be a faculty research tutor there. So now I live in Oxford. I've been there nine years. I travel all over the world. I work with some of the world's most influential Christian leaders. Here I want to show you a video clip. First, we want to read a passage of Scripture. I have gone way longer than I intended with that. But I want you to open your Bibles and look at Ephesians. I have my Bible on my phone because I pack light. I flew in here less than 48 hours ago, so I'm still kind of jet-lagged. And for me, it's way in the evening now because I'm five hours ahead of you. I want you to turn to Ephesians. Let me read you this passage. If you have a Bible or a phone, any way to look this up. I'd like for you to be able to see it if you can, but if you can't, I'll just listen. I want to read Ephesians 1, 15 to 22, a very, very powerful, profound piece of Scripture. We do read Paul because his letters have such power on what the gospel is. So I'm reading now verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And this is the verse I want you to be able to see. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is evoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Powerful piece of text. I wish I could exegete this and go through it. You know, those of us that love Bible study, there's just so much here. But this one little phrase, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. I pray that your understanding would be full. 
Friends, this means I pray that you would perceive and see accurately. We often are deluded by the culture around us. We're deluded by media. We're deluded by many things. Let me show you just a film clip. This was made three days ago in Oxford on Tuesday, three or four days ago. A friend of mine who's one of our students has a little drone. He filmed our center. This is a, what I'm going to show you is Oxford Center for Mission Studies is in the heart of Oxford. This church is, the building is 350 years old. It's been converted to a research center. We have 122 people studying with us from all over the world. They don't live in Oxford. They only come six weeks a year. They're from Asia, Africa, India, all over the world. This gives you a picture of the world I live in. What I want you to pay attention to, it's only a few seconds, see how many different nationalities you can spot in just a little bit of when it's on the audience. It's a drone, it shows the building, shows where we work, goes inside during our commencement ceremony, we're conferring PhDs. All the people in red dress, in red uh, academic regalia, or gowns, are our students. So see how many different nationalities you can see in this. This takes about two minutes. tell you something. If you'd have told me 10 years ago I was going to be living and working in Oxford, England, I'd have said, you're smoking crack. Never in my wildest dreams did I think that's where I'd live and work. Did you see how many nationalities were represented? Of our 122 PhD students, we have 65 different nationalities represented. These are students, Phil, they come from their countries, they study in Oxford six to seven weeks a year, then they go back to their home countries and that's where they're doing their research and their study. Now, we're not talking about PhDs that sit on a bookshelf somewhere and somebody never reads them. We're talking about PhDs that are deeply dug into research about real-world things and how does the gospel, how does theology, how does our speaking of God make sense in the world. You see, you have to do that. You have to make sense of the evil in the world around us 
and you have to make sense of the gospel. So here's a test. Let's do this. Raise your right hand if you think the world is more confused and more chaotic today than it was 30 years ago. Let me see how many hands go up. Pretty much across the board, most of us, right? I mean, I remember the Cold War. I remember getting under desk and, you know, Cuba was the big hotspot. But today, we got hotspots everywhere. The world is fragmented. I got news for you. The idea is don't pull away from it. The idea is get engaged with it. Now, other half of the test. Raise your left hand if you think there's hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Raise it up. Now put that right hand back up. Put that up. And say to yourself, I'm confused. <laughs> I'm conflicted. Because I know that the world seems chaotic, but I have hope. Well, friends, welcome to the reality of the good news of Jesus. Because it calls us to be engaged in the world in real ways where we can make a real difference with real hope. We're not preaching a fairy tale. We're preaching a real message. We're also working for change amongst human trafficking and amongst drug addiction and amongst any social human problem with an answer that Jesus Christ, Son of God, fully God, fully man, God becomes man and Jesus Christ lives on this earth, knows what you're feeling, knows what you're experiencing, crucified, dead and buried, risen from the dead, and now alive again. Amen is amen. Friends, that's the good news. He's alive. He's not in the tomb. But how easy that is to turn that into religion. How easy that is to turn it into a regular deal where we sit in church and go, oh yeah, we believe it. Friends, we need to get this down in our DNA. We need to live this out every day that we really believe that Jesus is alive. That Jesus has a purpose for my life. My little life matters. Yeah, you might not go to Oxford. You might not do the things I do. But you are a person who has destiny in Christ. You've been given gifts, talents, abilities. You're some of the most blessed people on the planet. You know that, right? First night I was here, Frank brought me in from the airport. And I can't believe, and don't do it around me, don't you ever complain if you're an American. I got time to tell this little short story? I went, came home from Cambodia years ago where people had died by the millions, where my life was absolutely ragged on all edges. I came back to North Carolina to see my mom at Christmas, and Walmart was packed to the rafters with people shopping, and I couldn't believe how many, you know, I hadn't seen that much stuff in five years. And they're all pushing their shopping carts up to the counters, and they're all complaining about wasting, waiting in line. And the soundtrack overhead is Silent Night. I'm trying to listen to Silent Night while all these people are whinging and complaining about shopping. And I just lost it. I just said, shut up! Shut up! You've got unmitigated audacity to stand here and complain while half the world starves to death. Shut up! A little lady, about 80 years old, standing next to me, turns to me and says, you're not from here, are you, Sonny? <laughs> That woman saved my life, I'm sure, because there were some angry shoppers. Now, friends, I don't ever, I haven't said that in a search service for a long, long time, but I just felt impelled to say, you know, I got here yesterday, I got your van, I drove around, I went around some of your shopping malls. Listen, this is an illusion, friends. This is not what's real. What's real is the good news of Jesus. It's the fact that we get to go out and share Christ with people. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Say that to yourself. I have Christ in me. Now, I've already seen a couple people looking at watches in here. 
I got news for you. You may not like this news either. You guys here in America, you use clocks when you preach. Everybody look at their clock. You got one, right? Let me take you to Africa for a minute. In Africa, when you get down there, they're going to ask you to speak, right? If you don't have a two and a half hour message, you can sit down and shut up. Because they're going to say, what do you got to say? And we want to hear the gospel for two and a half hours. You see, in Africa, by the way, the fastest growing church in the world today is in Africa. There's over 800 million Christians in Africa today, and it's growing like wildfire. An African friend of mine says, you, you have the clocks, we have the time. You know what he means? They have time for relationships. They have time for people. We need an awakening in our churches. We need an awakening in us. It doesn't start institutionally. It starts in us. I'm going to share two. I've got, I'll take, do this in seven, eight minutes. But I'll try to share with you two or three stories that I hope will help you with this idea of I pray the eyes of your heart are enlightened. I pray that you will see something now you won't see on CNN, you won't see on Fox, you won't see on MSBC, you won't see it on BBC, you won't see this. Because this is the news that's happening, that's up like in the gospel, it's happening in common ways, but it doesn't make it to the television screens. We have a student at our center, her name is Michelina. She is from Lebanon. She and her husband, Bashar, or Gamal, have been working in Syria for the last 16 years. Everyone in this room knows what's happening in Syria through CNN. Over a million probably displaced, close to that have been killed, internally displaced, externally displaced. You see it, it's like Cambodia, it's a nightmare. I can resonate with this country. I know what this is like, but I'm not there. Michelina, she was sitting in my office in Oxford. She wants to do research with us. She's gonna write up and study the role of women in a post-Christian context in a conflict zone. That's what she wants to study. And I said, well, tell me something about your work. So she said, well, we went there in 2006. We could do nothing. Bashar has a secret police. They watched everything we did. They monitored us. If we had a meeting, they knew we were doing it. They watched everything. She actually said this to me. She said, the war that started in 2012 is very good for us. I thought, this lady's crazy. She said, no, no, the secret police aren't bothering us anymore at all. The country's so torn apart by civil war, the, se the secret police have no time to look at the meetings. And the so there are Christians in Syria. They haven't all been killed. But by and large, Syria is a Muslim country. And then she told me this story. And I asked her permission to share it with you, and I'm going to. So she said, me and my husband were working, and we wanted to you know, share the gospel with Muslims. So we met a sheikh. A sheikh is like... He's the head of the community. He's the head of the local mosque. He's like the mayor. And this man lived in a town called Al-Sawida. You can look it up on Google if you could spell it. And Al-Sawida is in the southern part of Syria. So they went down every week. Can you imagine driving from Damascus down to Al-Sawida? It's about a three-hour drive. I mean, this crazy lady and her husband going down there just to share the gospel with a Muslim. And he's a sheikh. And he doesn't want to convert. He wants to debate with them and tell them how the, they're Christians. They're wrong. So they went down for over a month talking to this man, and then as they were getting to know him, he shared with them that his wife had a very serious disability. She had a, a, probably a, a tumor on her spine that was as big as a fist, and her back was twisted around this tumor. So the tumor was probably growing into the spine and wrecking her spine. 
And he said, you're Christians. You Christians believe in prayer. We're Muslims, we believe in prayer, but would you pray for my wife? They said, of course, of course, where is she? So they went into the house. They hadn't met the wife. They went in to pray for her. Now, they wear big Orthodox crosses. That's very typical. If you're a Syriac Christian, you wear a, it's a very large cross, about two inches tall. And she had one. She said, now, is it all right with you if we use the cross to pray? There's nothing magic about the cross, she said. We just want to put it on your wife's back because it's a symbol of the faith we have. He said, fine. They laid that on there. They prayed a simple prayer, and that tumor disappeared before their eyes. Disappeared. <laughs> I mean, sounds like a Bible story, right? Sounds like something you hear in the New Testament. Well, exactly. It's exactly what it is. Because then this guy goes, when they prayed, they prayed in the name of Esau, Jesus. And he said, well, I want to know more about Jesus. Okay, now they're really having fun. Now they're starting to talk to this guy about the Lord. Every time we get together, he doesn't want to debate Koran versus Christianity. He wants to talk about Esau. So what's going on? Fast forward the story. Now there's 700 Muslim background believers meeting in this sheikh's home. You're not going to see that on the news. You're not going to get that kind of report from your kind of reporting. Because the media has an agenda, friends, and the agenda is to confuse you to the realities of what's going on in the universe. I don't believe CNN, I don't believe Fox, I don't believe any of them. Because I get my truth from God. It's not that I'm uninformed. I understand political science. I understand political theory. But Jesus Christ is still the author of all history. All history turns on Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to say something now that I feel the liberty to say because I know Phil. I want you to pray for your country like you've never prayed for it before. You are so confused right now politically. Left and right, right and left. Everybody's got an agenda. Everybody's on the right or the left. We need a healing in our churches in America. We need a healing that stretches across all nationalities. Black, white, brown, I'm telling you, we need a healing. So we can be the church in the 21st century. And right now, when I watch your news from where I sit, through the BBC, it concerns me. And that's all I'm going to say. But pray for your nation. One other quick story. My friend Joshua Banda. He works in Zambia. Zambia is a country that's been torn apart by AIDS. All of Southern Africa, very severe AIDS and lots of human trafficking, lots of prostitution. Remember, friends, that many places I go and work, prostitution is a way of life for women. They have no other way to earn a living. Do you know that in Addis Ababa, Africa, the capital of Ethiopia, there's one brothel district, I've been in it, 200,000 women in one district. And most of those women are working to support their children. And I don't really call it sex work. I think it's exploitation of the human body. But I know that the real reality is poverty, it's corruption, it's all these things. So I'm not oblivious to these issues. Joshua is an amazing leader. Phil, we ought to go down there together. You take Becky, I'll take Kai. He has 7,000 people on a Sunday morning. The building is about half this size, so they have to have three services. Now, friends, I'll take you, but let me tell you something. You aren't going to probably like the heat because there's no air con in the building. And so can, how many, can you imagine getting about 3,000 people in here just on this floor? Take away all the padded pews. Take away the carpet. Just tile and chairs and 3,000 Africans, hands in the air, praising God for three hours. It's glorious. You feel like you died and gone to heaven. 
But Joshua is a man of God. He's a bishop of the, uh, he's the bishop of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Zambia. And he is also serving on his nation's ministry of national health. So here's a bishop, pastor, who also works for the government of Zambia. Because there's several key Christian people in the government of Zambia. Joshua and his wife, Gladys, like you guys, started a church in that little place in Lusaka where there wasn't one about 10, 15 years ago. And that's how big it's grown. You see, because the gospel is exploding across Africa. Where are the largest churches in the world today? Where are they? Are they in America? Are they in Europe? Where are they? Asia, Africa, Latin America. I mean, it's just amazing. You want to come to London? You want to find a church? Go find a Nigerian church in downtown London. You'll find thriving Nigerian churches in London. But back to Africa. Back to Joshua. They started a ministry with prostituted women, just a few women, men who were involved with, with you know, a lot of AIDS, a lot of sexual promiscuity. And Joshua and his wife were responding to all these issues. When I met them, I couldn't believe what they were doing. He had me come spend a week with him. I talked to his young leaders. Oh my, I was just so, I mean, I'm, I'm an old man now, but I get so much energy, I felt like I was 25 again. Because these young kids just pulled out of me. God, there's hope. There's hope in this city. This city is so broken, yet look at these young people. They love God. And then Joshua started this ministry. It started to grow and grow and grow, so he decided to do a PhD. Here's his PhD topic. Does monogamy have any influence on HIV AIDS? Can you prove it? Because everybody says, oh no, you don't have to worry about monogamy. It's okay to have same-sex relationships. It's okay to do this. It's okay to do that. Well, if you want to stand up and debate this stuff, you need empir empirical evidence, right? So Joshua spent five years doing research on men who were monogamous and five years doing research on men who weren't and looked at the spread of HIV AIDS and proved that monogamy is a real way to combat AIDS in Africa. This got picked up by not just the Zambian government, but the European Union's corollary in Africa is called the African Union. They had him present a paper at the African Union on the power of the gospel. Now friends, Africans, say what you will, may be the next leaders of the church in the world. Because they are coming through a time right now that's pretty dark. But God is doing amazing things. Joshua was just diagnosed with cancer about three months ago. So Phil, I held him in my arms on Tuesday, hugged him, talked to Gladys. Let me tell you something. There's nothing like relationships in the kingdom of God. Treasure your relationships. Treasure your families. Treasure the things that really matter. I'm going to tell you, somebody has switched the price tags. We are valuing the most cheapest junk, sports figures, all this junk we put so much emphasis on. What matters are people. And you have access to people in the workplace, in the church, wherever you go. I was in the, I was in the Salvation Army right behind here the other day. I spent an hour walking around praying for people in there. People want hope. People want to know we have something more than just a gibberish of religion. God help us to be light to the nations. And I believe with all my heart that God is doing a new thing in our hour. You see, missions has been effective. All this work, when you and I started out, let's send Bill and Kai out to be missionaries. Send them to Asia. Well now, friends, when I go to these countries, I'm sitting in the back of the bus. I'm not, I may get to preach. 
but the real energy is coming from Africans and Asians, and those are the leaders. Your guys that are going to El Salvador, those kids, they're going to help. They're going to change El Salvador. Not our mission teams. We go. But friends, it's a great day to be involved. Give. Use your time. Use your talents. Use your energy. Use your resources. I know I've gone over my time. But I love you, and I pray that God will open your eyes, enlighten your hearts to see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, both here in Michigan and around the world. Amen? Amen. That's my time. Oh, this is my, this is my time sheet. I have to see how far I went over. <laughs> You're fine. Amen. Were you blessed this morning? Were you blessed? Give appreciation to whom appreciation is due.